Some people clap on a one and three. Some people clap on a two and four. Some people don't join at all because they got no rhythm, and that's all right. Some people, they drink too much. Some people don't drink enough. Some people are just like me. I hope y'all forgive them. I'm like Scott and Tommy Corbins. I'm like Pete Southtown, Zan Zan. I'm always speaking my mind, but I'm better off by my tongue. I'm a bad show at the wrong time. Still, I'm a legend of my own mind. I'm good for the song, but I'm not for everyone. Now. Welcome to another episode of Zero Ales and Hockey Tales with Wally. And today, I'm so excited to have on a 51-year-old from Pontiac, Saskatchewan, Canada. His hockey journey took him to England and Canada. A staple and legend with the White Link Raiders, where he once had 67 goals, 136 points in 24 games played. He's a BNL champion with the Guilford Flames. Ran amok as a TV guy with Sky Sports and as a fellow podcaster and is running retry, bringing folks together and has been sober since May 28th, 2016. Welcome to the shed, Nick Rothwell. <laughs> uh, uh, thanks very much, Brent. Thanks for having me on. Uh, kind of a, a, a weird introduction thinking about my history being a hockey player. I kind of have forgotten of the days of getting on the ice and, and hitting a puck in That's anger. It. Has it been that long? I think I retired in, like, well, I didn't even retire. I just quit playing when I was with the Guilford Flames in about 1997, 98. So it's been a while. It has been a while. You had quite the numbers, too. I don't know what kind of hockey you were playing, but. <laughs> it was it was different. It was different. It was, uh, it was kind of like, a, I suppose, equivalent to, like, the third or fourth division in England. You know, you had, like, the Heineken League or the BNL League and then the Super League and now the Elite League. You've had all the top elite leagues. And we were, like, probably second or third underneath that. It was more semi-pro. Uh, the guys, the guys who, who there was a couple of pro like imports on the team and they were pro. And then with Guilford, I mean, that was more professional, but with the white link Raiders, it was more semi-pro and that's where I was going to university too. And, um, so I was kind of balancing being a, being a student and playing hockey and it was great. Hockey was awesome because it was giving me enough money just to live and get a degree. And it was a platform for me to, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be a hockey player forever. And I used yeah. it as a tool to kind of get the degree and then and then get a career in TV. Well, sometimes it's easier for people to know that they're not going to be a full-time professional hockey player because then you do focus on school and other things. There's a lot of dudes that think they're going to make it. And then they get really close. And then, you know, then you don't have the school. You don't have any, you don't have much uh, backup plan. <laughs> That's it. You know, and, and when I was growing up in Saskatoon, it was something that I was going to, it was a plan. I was going to use hockey in the UK to go to university to and then to your get life. a career. Yeah. I knew I wasn't going to make it like pro in, in Canada. Uh, I hurt myself pretty bad as a, as a kid, like when I was about 14 or 15 with my hip. And from then I just, I'd lost that little bit of pace when I was trying yeah. out for triple A midget and stuff. And they were like, you're a little bit slower. So I made a bit of junior B hockey, but like having a partially dislocated hip when you're 14 or 15 and not getting it looked after. And yeah. Yeah. They were just, you know, you just kept playing. No one ever said anything. And then luckily though, Brent, I just had a full right hip replacement uh, four months ago. And now I'm feeling on top of the world. I feel like I could actually get back on the ice and play again. 
Oh, actually, I yeah, I know a fellow in town here that's had both hips replaced. That was a he's a shed guy, Jeff Alcabrack, and um, he gets around good now. Oh, it's like a new lease of life. It really is. Like after having like 10, 15 years of chronic pain and then having the hip done, it's, uh, it, it's beautiful. It. Yeah, they <laughs> say I need my knee done, but I can't get her done till I'm like 60. So, you know, what do you do? <laughs> Just get old fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyways, uh, they, yeah, whatever. It's not yeah. that bad. I can live with it now. You know, there was a couple of years there where I, I wouldn't do things because they'd hurt. And then eventually I was like, you know what? I got to live, <laughs> you know, if she goes, she goes. <laughs> um, so I get into how we know each other. Nice meeting you. <laughs> yeah. Nice meeting you too. I'm glad that we've got some, some common friends together. And uh, yeah, like I say, Simsy, I worked with Dave. Um, like, first of all, I knew Dave from the Sheffield Steelers, like I, the very first season and a bit I played for Sheffield and I knew Dave back then. And then we started to work together about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, working for Sky Sports. He was, he was my co-guy on that. So you you were doing the hockey games, or what do you do in all the sports? What do you do? Yeah, it was just like um, when I was working with Dave, we were just covering the the elite league here. Um, like I would do uh, color, he would do play by play, and then I would present the show, and and he'd be a guest, and then we'd have someone like Rick Strack in as well. He's a he's a a good old UK name boy from Alberta, and he would be like a guy offering a little bit more color, and then we'd have some guests on. So me and Simsy go way back. Yeah, for sure. Well, and that's right when he was getting Sheffield started that first season. I I looked at some of the numbers on that team. You guys must have had a tough time winning games. There's a guy, Steve Namath, Namath <laughs> at a, yeah. 186 points in 25 games played. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the thing with Steve, like he's an ex-NHL hockey player. He played with the Rangers and uh, with Team Canada, one of the best hockey players I've ever played with. I mean, I love playing with Steve. Uh, I was like an 18, 19 year old kid. And, and this guy, he was just lighting everything up. But yeah, <laughs> hockey in the UK was a lot different 30 years ago to what it is today. Well, yeah, I would, I don't know. I I get really bored <laughs> doing that. That's so, like four in, points a game. Well, Ali, do you know what, like uh, in, in, uh, in Sheffield. No, it's not. Of, That's eight, almost eight points a game. Yeah. My math's yeah. off. It's early. <laughs> We would have like, there would be scores of 28, 30 goals. And I'll tell you what, the crowd, like eight, 10,000 people would be going just as crazy on the 30th goal. It was mad. Well, I guess that's when, I guess the fans are just getting into hockey too. And they probably think it's cool to win 30, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. There, we, we weren't getting much NHL on the TV back then. <laughs> was there a lot more fighting back in the day? Cause I know that was the stigma of the league until I guess, not too long before I came to the league was that, you know, there, that it was a fighting league. Oh yeah. You know, I, it was a way for, for young British guys to really, to make a name for themselves. You know, there were some real good, tough British kids and, and they would go toe to toe with anybody. And I think that that's why, that's why in, in the UK, mainly in North American style, I think that everyone liked the grit and determination. The imports that were coming over were a lot from Canada, Western Canada. And uh, a lot of tough guys that were coming here, not just tough on the ice, but just tough characters, you know, yeah. and, uh, and it rubbed off on and, and the British guys who didn't have as much skill because they didn't have as much ice time. You know, it's just, it's simple as that. Well, and that's they, how they, you, they, you get involved, right? Is when you're not getting much ice time and stuff, sometimes you gotta do something different. <laughs> just drop, drop the mitts and, yeah. uh, and, and that, that would be a way for you to fit in. And, and you don't look like a either. fighter. Did you know that your nickname was Pretty Boy Nick Rothwell? 
Yeah, I did. That was a Simsy thing. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is, is that I wasn't a fighter, but I knew how to fight uh, just growing up in, in Saskatchewan and playing some junior B hockey. You had to drop, drop the mitts. And I wasn't a highly skilled player over here, uh, even though the numbers, like a couple of seasons, I got a, I racked up a few goals. But um, I also, I didn't mind dropping the mitts every once in a while. I had a bad temper when I was a kid, so I, I fought quite a bit in Saskatchewan. And, um, I mean, it was exhilarating. It was part of the game back then, and uh, and I liked filling that role sometimes. Um. Yeah, I didn't mind challenging myself every once in a while. I thought I was pretty good at hanging in there, not really getting punched clean. <laughs> you know, that, that was my that was my trick, really, just throw really fast. I'd take some to the top move. of the yeah. head, but then I would just keep going forward and try and get my head in their armpit and then just swing up, right? They can't yeah. get you if you keep skating forward, but if they I was a push and pull guy. I was just really I was push and pull and pull them into my and really uh, you're actually yeah. trading with these fellas. That's <laughs> not what I would do. I just keep going forward. <laughs> but then you know what? I didn't I never really fought any of the really big guys because I would have died. One time my buddy Hendo grabbed me at the end of a practice and he put my shoulder pads like he put his hand and I got both sides of my shoulder pads with one grip and he could have done whatever he wanted to me. Mm, yeah. It, oh, there's some, there's some strong I didn't guys. like that feeling. <laughs> no, no, I don't, no one likes to be ragdolled. No, no. Well, it's happened though, but okay. I better get back on track. I get into how we know each other. Um, I think maybe you had wrote something on Twitter and I wrote, Hey, you sound like a guy that would cut has a story, right? And then you sent me an email yesterday and I read yeah. it and I was like, huh, let's do this. Yeah, let's do this. I really like that part of your email. Let's do this. It's something that I, I say a lot in life because it's kind of like, why waste, why waste any time thinking about doing well, something? You let's, can let's just talk get on about it, it yeah. or be about it, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So no, I really appreciate that. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to, to chatting with you over the next little bit. Yeah. And uh, well, you know, the kids got the day off school and then we got tryouts at eight in the morning, the next two days. So there's not much time to get this shit in there. You just got to do her, you know, let's get her done. Okay. So where and what are you doing now? Uh, so I'm living in London now, uh, a place that I've always really felt very at home uh, being, you know, more than more so than even in Canada. And this a brief little time that I spent in the States. Um, London's always felt like home. So I'm here and I'm running a, a company called Retribe, which is a company that I started in, uh, in Toronto when I got sober, uh, six years ago. And it was really, um, it was, it was a company set up to help guys like me, you know, guys who, you know, I, I played sport all my life and it was an intrinsic part of my life. It was part of my identity. And when I stopped playing sport at 28 years old, you know, I was I was thrust into the bright lights and in, in the big city of working in London. And I was very ill-equipped with life. And and I went down a really, really dark path, friend. And and I started Retribe to help initially to help ex-athletes when they stop playing the sports that they love. Any ex-athletes, you feel some bereavement and you have a sense of loss and a loss of identity. So Retribe was set up to help ex-athletes stay connected so that they can stay accountable in their lives because that's one thing that I lost when I stopped playing sport is accountability I had nobody in the changing room to call me on my bullshit I had no one to say hey Nick you know what you, you might be drinking a little bit too much or Nick I wouldn't I wouldn't try sniffing that because it, I've seen guys go down a, a really dark path no one to really kind of guide me or be my buddy um, and I, I ended up having a bunch of like 
veneer relationships with guys who like had a lot of cash, you know, wore nice suits and drove nice cars. And they were just surface relationships. They weren't the relationships that I had when I played team sport. And, uh, and so retribe was initially set up to do that. And now we basically help people in corporate and sports organizations build community. Uh, and it's given me a purpose and a passion in my life. Uh, Brent, that I that I just never thought that I would want, and it's beautiful. Um, yeah, passion and drive is what it's all about, right? And uh, mm. I went to your website after you emailed me, and I thought the uh, philosophy really hit home for ex athletes, like you said. Um, mm. Yeah, I wrote it down. I don't really want to read it. I don't want to cry again on the show. So I'm well, not go gonna... for it, man. Go for it. No. <laughs> Uh, but what I would say is when I was done, it was hard, but I yeah. did have my kids and my wife yeah. to keep me in line. Yeah. No, I feel you, man. Again. And, uh, and I, I, I got married when I was really young and we never ended up, uh, staying together. And I, I went off on this journey of like really fake relationships you know I didn't have uh, a wife or kids or anything to, to again like keep my checks and balances um balanced and I just went into isolation so um but I, so I was dealing with that loss you know with no one around me to, again to kind of keep an eye on me and and I did the thing that a lot of guys like me do which I moved you know so I moved from London to LA where I told everyone, you know, I was going there to work in TV and I couldn't get a job there because I couldn't get a work permit. And I went down the, you know, living in a hotel room on Venice Beach, drinking, uh, drinking and, uh, and doing drugs, you know, and, and never, and everyone would always be able to say on the outside, Nick, Nick looks all put together, but inside I was just torn apart. And that, that, that lasted in my life for like 15 years of moving. And every time you move, the relationships you make are, are less and less deep and they just don't mean as much. And, and that was my, my journey for 15 years of, of real, real loneliness. 15 years of, I guess, moving around and getting into things and not really having real relationships then. eh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, human beings are wired for the need to connect and belong. This fundamental aspect of human nature dates back to the beginning of our existence when tribes, in order to survive, shared roles and resources, each per person having a purpose and ability to contribute. Um, I guess when you're a hockey player and you have a role on a team and each season you have best buddies and you're all in it together trying to win a trophy and then when it's over and you don't have a purpose, you don't have a passion. And like, I guess, yeah, the ability to contribute. And it's like, what am I good at? Like I was a hockey player. What, what am I getting up to do today? That's driving me. Right. Yeah. yeah at 6am. That, that, that... I'm in my shed today though, folks. It's a good day. <laughs> right. Dude, you know, exactly. You know, and I, and I think about what you're doing. And, uh, and the word that, you know, that, that is big on my website is community. And that's why I love what, what guys like you are doing is, is, you know, you're helping people stay connected through community um, and people talking about the one thing that we all are here for, which is our love of hockey, you know, and 
and you're right, you know, in that in that reading that you have is that we are wired to belong to something. And in this time, you know, my whole the company is called Retribe. You know, so I've studied as much as I could. You so know, I guess history. that means you yeah. were in one tribe, you're a hockey player, now you're retribing to get out into a new one. Well, that's it. You know, that's it. We 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 were part of a tribe, and and before hockey, we were part of a tribe. We evolved for tens of thousands of years by giving to the tribe, not taking from the tribe. You know, and that's what we did as teams, right? In the changing room, there was the jokers, there were the serious guys, you know, there were the the quiet guys, there were there were the partiers, there were all people that filled different roles. There were the fighters, there were the scorers, there were the the, the playmakers, there were the defensive blocks, and then the crazy goalies. And I use the word crazy lightly. I love you guys. Yeah. And um, and and the different goalies, you know, we we all fulfilled a role and a and a purpose, and and it's just. You know, I, and I know, I just know through experience and even in, 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 in just your energy now, right? The, the connections that we have in those changing rooms. And that's what guys miss, oh, you know, yeah. not, not, not the, the skating the boards at 11 o'clock on a Thursday night. Um, now, everything like, I missed about hockey, I've found in my shed. <laughs> beautiful, man. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I get to reconnect with guys and um, I get to meet new beauties, you know? Yeah. 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 It's cool. So anywho. Yeah. So you've been sober since May twenty-eighth, twenty sixteen. You wrote the date to me, so that day must yeah. mean a lot. It means a lot. It because it was the day that this knucklehead finally surrendered. I was brought up like you, you know, real men don't cry, real men don't show emotion, real men don't ask for help, real men can sort out all their own problems. And these are the things that I learned from my father, my coaches, my teachers. You know, these are traditional things that the guys like us are taught, not just guys, but but girls too. And um, and I knew around when I went around 30 years old, I knew I had a problem. I knew there was I, I kind of laughed at it. I was like, you know what? Drinking is going to bite me in the butt because my dad was an alcoholic. It ran and, you know, my mom had problems with alcohol. They both passed now. Um, I'm not saying it's something that you inherit, but there are certain characteristics of alcoholics that do get passed on certain traumas and stuff. It's intergenerational in some cases. And, um, and I, I never asked for help, dude. And then at 45 years old, you know, it, it was, I was, I was in a squat in Toronto. I tried. What's a uh, squat like? Uh, a place that I'm not paying any rent. Uh, a flat in in Toronto where I'm not paying any rent. It looked like something on a train spotting, you know, uh, urine soaked mattress, um, puke up and down the walls. And it was green bile puke because I wasn't eating anything. No. It was just the puke that you get when you shoot, have a shot of vodka and it kind of shocks your liver into working again because your liver's full. It's a filter and it doesn't want to work. Your kidneys don't want to work. And so I had liver and kidney failure. I had acute pancreatitis, which is a, a deadly uh, condition. I've had that a couple of times, but the doctors are saying what was killing me was dehydration and malnutrition because my my whole diet was straight vodka, and then I would chase it with a peanut M M&M and M because I didn't want to use any liquid to because I didn't want to fill my bladder. So that's what was killing me. And and um, and then I woke up on the twenty eighth of May, twenty sixteen, and and I'd been trying in a twelve step program, but struggling, but something was beating in me so much that I finally like it felt. It almost like felt like in that gross room, it almost felt like a, a warm quilt was put around me. And I kind of heard this, this thing of like, you're done, son, you're done. 
And I think that was just kind of the death of ego. I think I was just so crushed that I, I made myself, my, it took me about three days to walk. And, uh, and I was shaking with detoxes and, um, and I went to a, a meeting and I looked at a guy and I, and those two words came out of my mouth that saved my life, dude. And, and I looked him right in the eye and I said, help me brother, please help me. And, uh, and I went through the recovery program. That's the cornerstone of my life today. And, and I've not thought about a drink in over six years and that's a miracle. Well, congratulations getting out of that. Cause can't be easy when you're that far down. No, you know, there's no, and, and unfortunately, the longer I'm around recovery, the, the, the more I hear of people passing. Uh, alcoholism is a deadly illness, and it's one that, that uh, roughly about one in 10 people um, have alcohol use, and uh, they call it a disorder. I just call it alcohol use, and it's a problem. <laughs> and it's just the fact that some people cannot consume alcohol safely, and it creates this, this craving for more and more and more. And even when the consequences, like for me, which were, you know, food, drink, driving convictions um, and a jail sentence, like an actual jail in, in, in Thurlow Penitentiary in Southern Ontario with murders and rapists and drug dealers and wife beaters. And I'm sitting there going, how the heck did I get here? The how, day I got How up, old are you? You're in your 30s or something? No, no. I was 42, 43 years old. And, uh, and I drank the day that I got out. You know, and that's the, the, this is, like I say, this is the horrible part of this illness is it has nothing to do with willpower. It is an absolute powerlessness over alcohol. There will guys that will drink themselves to death because they think that there is a solution in the drink because at some point in their lives, it did work. So for me, because it made them feel better. For me, it was when I was 28, 29 years old. I had this crippling fear. I grew up in a very, like, my mom and dad are, were amazing people and they did the best that they could. But at certain times, my dad was a very scary person. He was violent and he was very big and, and intimidating. And, you know, I would pee my pants sometimes when he would walk in the room when I was like five, six years old. I, you know, I, I wet my bed sometimes till I was 13 years old because I was just so scared of this man. And then it so inside of me is this scared person. So I became a liar and a manipulator and I would fantasize and I would just get anything out of my head to, to relieve me of these fears. And then when I was 28, you know, I took that drink, I did that Coke and the fears just went away and I felt normal. I felt like I could breathe. Um, and that's, that was the beginning of it all is that alcohol took pain away from me. So and, yeah, then uh, you didn't feel the pain and you were didn't have to deal with the issues so then you just kept riding that wave until you couldn't anymore exactly that's exactly how it goes you know alcohol is a solution it takes away pain it takes away fear and then obviously it is a corrosive uh um substance you know it has ethanol it has uh dicetic acid it has acetaldehyde these are corrosive things that destroy your liver and it can and it will create a craving in the brain for more of it which is the insane thing, even though it's destroying our livers, we want to put more of it in our bodies. Yeah. And then you said like you got hooked on cocaine too. And you tried that. I guess I'll just tell, say that like, I never did try it. I didn't want to, cause I didn't want to know I liked it, you know? And as you grow up and you become an adult, sometimes you'll see shit out there. Right. And um, I would never try it because I know when I like doing stuff like podcasting, she's full go, right? So I knew never to try that shit, and I'm glad I never did. Yeah, you, I, but I, I had that mentality too until I was like 28, and then it was it took 
it took a guy who I really looked up to, you know, he was very successful. He had a nice suit and a nice car and, you know, and, and I remember him just taking a, a, a an Amex gold card in this little pouch and just put it in and go sniff, sniff that, you know, and I, I was kind of like, I was, I was peer pressured into doing it, but it felt like, Oh, I've got to do this. You know, I'm sitting in this, in this toilet, in this really nice club in Soho and I, and I, and I did it. And, um, it took a while. For, I wouldn't say that I, I became a, an addict with that. I because I was I'm an alcoholic. It's alcohol is my main problem. But in the beginning, in the first like specifically eighteen months to two years, cocaine was around all the time. Um, so it basically just enabled me to drink more because it would uh, keep me up. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, that you got out of. Uh, so how does it? So you go to rehab, right? You live there for a while. Um. Like well, I, yeah, the re- I went to a couple of treatment centers in Canada and, uh, you know, I'm not going to knock any treatment center. I think that uh, the work that they try to do is amazing, but unfortunately for me, it never worked. It just got me off of this, the alcohol for a little bit of while in a, in a safe space, which is needed because when you're coming off of alcohol, it's very, very dangerous. You can, your aorta can pop and, and a lot of people can die uh, from seizures coming off of alcohol. So it was a safe space for me to detox. Um but unfortunately, when when this is the problem with alcoholism is that when you when you have no alcohol in your body, you'll still have this obsession that oh maybe just one glass of wine with my pizza will be okay, knowing that if I have that glass of wine, I'll end up drinking the bottle right. or a, you know or a whole bunch more. But you'll just still do it. And this is the obsession side of alcoholism. And that's the bit that kills guys is that, you know, you can go to treatment, you can be pushed away from it. But when you get out, you will find it again, again, because your body, your spirit, everything needs that solution, that sense of ease and comfort that that drink gave you. And now what my life has done is I've, I've substituted my my life's purpose with that. And that gives me now the sense of ease and comfort of a drink. I have now got purpose in my life and, yeah. and that's substituted. So it, it, like I say, it's a miracle that I don't even think about a drink. Right. And uh, that's awesome that you found yeah. that peace. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then what is a day at Retribe like for you then? What, what is like, how many people do you got? What exactly are you doing? Like what's the day to day here? What are you doing? Yeah, so uh, we we're, we work with a, a community here in London where I just basically, I, I do this. I do like weekly Facebook talks with really, like a lives with really cool, interesting people. Um, and it just supplies, you know, what people are doing. A lot of coaches, a lot of uh, teachers, a lot of uh, charities that we talk to. And they'll give people in the community, um, you know, resources where people who might be feeling a little bit lonely or disconnected can join their 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 services. Um, and also I work with a, a woman named Dr. Misha Jarvis, who is the sports psychologist at Brunel University and the sports psychologist for a, a football team here, uh, Wickham Wanderers. And she's been in sports psychology for over 30 years. And, um, and we've written this program called Tough Through Tender, which is a, a program that balances things like toughness, which is really resiliency. Um, and tenderness and that's built around vulnerability and compassion and it's something that I think we all need to do Brent is like balance these things in our lives right because for so long I was trying to be super tough Um, but all of a sudden some vulnerability comes into my life and I start to become a little bit more balanced and a little bit more and that's what it is it's a balancing act Um, there's there's the alpha males though right that they're not going to show any tenderness well that's that is I think 
something that needs to be unlearned because, and that's what we like to do with Retribe is that we, these sessions are about unlearning the things that, I mean, if you think about the history of coaching in North America and in, in Europe, it comes what it from, is now. <laughs> well, you, you think about when we were coached, we were coached by like, you know, do or die, lead, go through a wall for guys, like all of this, you know, very, and also very harsh, a lot of homophobic slurs and a lot of like toxic masculine phrases. Um, and they were taught that by somebody and they were taught that by somebody. And this is like post-World War II Winston Churchill, Churchill uh, speeches is, is, is what was like woven into sports culture. And it hurt a lot of people, for instance, and I'm sure you could relate to this, right? You know, I, I broke my wrist when I was like 14, same time I, I did my hip. And, you know, a coach said to me, I was like, coach, my wrist hurts. And he said, suck it up, Rothwell. So I played a whole season of double A major hockey in Canada with a broken wrist where I needed at the end of the season, the scaphoid had worn away and they needed to take bone off my hip and put it in my wrist mm. all because a coach said to me, suck it up. Right. You know, so these are the things that are taught to us that we need to unlearn and to make sure that future generations of, of, of men and women don't need to go through the pain and the trauma that we've gone through. Because it doesn't build character. It doesn't, you know, it hurts and it mm -hmm. creates trauma and it puts people into, into these isolated places where they feel lonely. So I will, I will argue with anyone who says it builds character because I think what builds character is truth where someone says, oh, let's get that checked out. Uh, uh, you know, when, when, when I think there's being hurt and there's being injured. I think a broken wrist is injured, but I think, yeah. I still think that, um, persevering and dealing with some shit's okay too <laughs> hey hey that's his resilience building right there's, yeah there's 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 resilience building but also like telling an eight-year-old there's no crying in hockey okay now this is something that we were taught listen to me my shadow cry all the time <laughs> well listen like an eight an eight-year-old eight-year-old nick was designed to cry at large the amygdala right um we're designed to feel we're designed to cry because this is why we have tear ducts and um, and we're told to suppress it. So now you wonder why a lot of uh, aggressive male behavior is happening, uh, you know, on the streets or in the home and domestic violence is because men don't have proper safe spaces to show their emotions because it's bottled up and it's going to come out in aggressive and, and, and perhaps violent behavior. So and this all stems from the things that we were taught when we were kids, which is like we're not allowed to cry, which I think is the most harmful thing you can tell. You know, but, you know, you know, and, the, and like to your point, there are places to build resiliency. And I think it takes good coaches, good parents, good mentors to be able to learn about things like this. Right. So this is part of part of Retribe is teaching people how to create safe spaces and safe language for, for young children, for young adults to express emotions. Okay. Um, yeah. Jeepers, this is a deep one today. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poster pictures. <laughs> so there was the one with you at Sibsy. That's Sky Sports. So um yeah. he's quite the legend of hockey in the UK, isn't he? Simsy's got like this this reputation over here because he's got kind of no filter. Um right. I really like Dave. Uh like I say, he's never me and him have never crossed paths on anything. We've got a lot that we agree on. We've got a lot that we disagree on. And I think that's the thing, is that you know, this world's become so divided. That if if Dave says something like he's a he was a, a pro Brexit, I was a Remainer. Uh, we're not going to not be friends because of that. 
you know, we're still going to be friends, even though, you know, he he agrees with something and I disagree with it. And, but, and, and, and same on a lot of subjects, perhaps on some of the things that I've said to you today, you know, Dave would disagree with, but we're still going to be friends. So, so I, and I think Dave is just because he's got this no filter and because he's this rivalry between Sheffield and Nottingham in the UK is so big. He's got a lot of enemies, but in his heart, he's a very, very good man. Oh yeah. yeah. And you see what he yeah. does for charities and everything, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 He yeah, just he's a does good guy. bleed orange. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. Almost to an insane level. So he's a little bit wacko too. <laughs> I hope he hears that. So what all what all have you done in um the TV world then? Because I saw the microphone with FEI TV. I'm not sure yeah. what that is. So so in in sobriety, I got sober and um and I wanted to get back into the two things that I knew, which were broadcasting and advertising. And I was in Toronto and I would have been 46 years old and I was going around to Sportsnet TSN and, and I had a cracked tooth from, uh, from hockey and, and it was, and I, it was cracked. I had just gotten sober. I looked a mess. So I didn't, I got a couple of screen tests and, and I didn't really look that good. I, I didn't really uh, read that well. I was still a little bit shaky, but I, I, inside of me was this determination to get back into something. Yeah. But honestly, Brent, I was unemployable. I was I was coming off of a 15-year whirlwind, right? And um, and I ended up, I was struggling. I was really struggling for money. And I actually spoke at a meeting and I said, I'm really struggling. Uh, and some, some guy came up to me after and said, Nick, I run this construction company. I, I didn't know you were struggling, but I got some labor work. So I was like, I'll take it. So I ended up, like I was tearing out kitchens uh, in the beaches in Toronto for 20 bucks an hour. And I was so grateful. And then someone said, and then I started Retribe. And then I went to do some night classes on how to, to, to do business plans because I wanted to kind of unlearn some of the things that I learned about running a business in the 90s and early 2000s. And all the time, Brenda, I'm showing willingness to show up. And then I ended up meeting this woman who I knew from recovery and I was telling her what I was doing. She said, Nick, you know, we've got a job going at the hotel. It was the Western Harbor Castle in Toronto. She goes, I need help. It's a three-month contract. I need help running the, the gym. Basically, I became a glorified towel boy at the pool. And uh, but I was and I was 47 years old. And I was like, how the heck did I? I used to have my own TV show. And out of the blue, I was like, why don't I email my old producer in Sky at Sky in London? And I emailed her and I was like, Trish, it's Nick. Uh, I've got a long story to tell you, but I'm in Toronto and uh and and this is a woman who never replies to me emails because she's so busy. And she emailed me back in five minutes. She goes, oh, my God, Nick, I was talking about you to someone at IMG last night. They need a North American TV presenter. And lo and behold, one thing came to another. And at the end of that three-month contract, I, I got a job working for IMG covering the World Equestrian Games in North Carolina. That's the FEI, the Federation of International Equestrian Sports. And that, Brent, bought me it got me a good chunk of cash to pay off some debts and uh, and it brought me back to London and I got offered a job to work with a buddy's agency who had fired me, you know, in 2000 because I was partying too much. So how I, all things came around, then I ended it all up circled back, this, back around, it all circled back, you know, and then I was like, I really need to, my heart was in building retribe. So I, I jumped two feet, like big into building retribe. I left everything and got some loans out, some bounce back loans, uh, which were loans given to companies just before COVID. And I just threw myself into building Retribe. And, and now, you know, we've paid off our loans 
and we're we're starting to really thrive. So that's, that's awesome. the kind of the journey. In, in, so retribes pretty new that TV stuff. Well, it, it, I did start it in Toronto, like I say, six years ago, but it's evolved now to becoming like a, a full-on company, you know, right. um, and... Uh, well, well, that's we, great actually, from the think of you being in that squatting place to, you know, um, to here we are now. Yeah, pretty, six pretty years ago. Uh, six years, eh? Because yeah, it can't you know, be easy, uh, like I said, to build yourself back up and to get where you are now. Well, there's a lot of pride swallowing, right? Like I said to you, like there's like I had my own TV show, I had this Porsche, I had a flat on the river in Chiswick, I shopped on Savile Row. There's a lot of things that I thought were the measure of me, and then to all of a sudden become a towel boy at 47 years old, you know, at a at a, at a four star hotel in Toronto, um, and then but I think it's just the willingness to show up and to know that I'm just building my life up, and then what's happened in the last six years, um, like I say, they've been miracles. Uh, I've got a life that I never knew that I wanted. It's absolutely beautiful. And if you start to ask me about being a stepdad, then you might get tears out of me right now. Cause that's where, I, that's the point in my Are life. Are you a stepdad though? So here's the story. Okay. I'll tell it to you. We got time, right? Oh yeah. So I was, when I got sober, you go through one of the steps is you talk to another guy about your fears. And uh, one of my fears was that, um, so uh, skip that a little bit before I was, I was with a woman in Toronto and, and she had a miscarriage and I, and that, when I, when she told me she was pregnant, I thought I'm complete. You know, I was 42. I was like, I wanted to be a dad because all my life people were saying, Nick, you're going to be such a good dad. And she had a miscarriage and that led to the point where I ended up in jail because of drinking. And when I got sober, then at 45 years old, I was like, oh, one of my fears was never being a dad again. And this man, who is going to be the best man at my wedding, which is coming up in June, um, he said to me, Nick, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And in this way where I just felt the fear go away. Yeah. And I was like, well, cool. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And then at 49 years old, I'm in London. I'm building Retribe. And I finally look in the mirror. After 49 years of like self-loathing and, and Nick, you're a piece of shit, Nick, you're a failure. Those are the things that I would look in the mirror and I would say to myself. And then at 49 years old, I finally looked in the mirror, friend, and, and I said, uh, Nick, I'm proud of you. Proud of you. Because I worked a lot in recovery and helping a lot of people. And I think it built enough self-esteem in me to finally meet myself. You know, And they say you can never meet someone as deeply, as deeply as you can meet yourself. And finally, I'd met Nick. And um, and then this beautiful woman came into my life. And we met. And she said she's got three sons, and and which uh, it boggled my mind because this is she didn't look like she had kids like her. She's, she's stunning. <laughs> I'm not saying that the people who What are you saying about kids, the mothers so, out there? <laughs> oh, sorry. That came out wrong. But she did. She, all mothers are beautiful. Yeah. They really are. But she didn't look like she had three kids, if you know what I mean. And just uh, I was in shock, but she's she's from the Czech Republic, so she had them playing hockey. So I I thought, oh my God, the universe has put this 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 woman and these kids in my life, and um and they they have the they've had their their rocky road, you know, with with how they were brought up, you know, before she left her ex husband and stuff, who who can be a nasty piece of work. Yeah, and uh, and I thought, oh, I'm here to save them. So I kind of put on this Superman cape and I'm like, I'm here to save the day. 
So I got involved in their lives. And, and Brent, the only thing that I knew is which my dad taught me, which is like, I was a, became a disciplinarian. And I was like, don't talk to your mom like that. Don't do this. Don't do this. And it made me feel sick. Yeah. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And she said, Nick, take your time, take your space. And I actually did. I, I, I went away for a week and I did some writing and I did some meditating. And I just, I went into the, I was in Portugal in the Algarve and I went into the ocean and I was just, I was like, please help me, please help me. And I just started to cry. These tears just fell down my face and the smile came up. And I remember I just, these fish started coming around me. We were like, dude, what's up? And, um, and I just came out of that water and I just felt different. And I came back to London and I, and since then it's been over a year now. And I've, I've, I've discovered that I'm not here to save these boys at all. Yeah, They're here to teach me. It was like this thing of like, I was David Hasselhoff, you know, on the, on Baywatch. And I was like, you're trying to do too much and be too much I, instead of just be yourself. Like, yeah. I'm like, Hey, you watch me go save this woman and these three kids. And I yeah. watch, watch me. I'm swimming out. I'm swimming out. Watch me, watch me. And then I get there and I'm like, here, I'm here to save you. And and she says, dude, I'm a, I'm a fucking mermaid. And these are little mermen. You better get back to shore. You're going to die. <laughs> and, and that's what I learned is that they're so resilient. They're so tough and, and beautiful. And, and they've got so much to teach me as a, as a man and, and every day. And I'm, uh, we're now live in a family home together. And, uh, and like I said, life is beautiful. It's not without its challenges, but I've got the tools today to be able to ride those waves and not go into isolation, not think that a substance is going to help me. There are solutions out there, folks. And I think that in connection, in accountability and in community, you can find whatever protocols work for you, whether it's a 12 step program or therapy, or just getting back on the ice again, because that's something that I've done. I just did my level one coaching so that I can get back on the ice with these kids and get my hip done. And, you know, when the, the rink around the corner for me is just about to open up in December and we'll all be back on the ice again. And, uh, and like I say, I, I just can't think of, of, a, of a, a more suitable path for my life right now. I'm, I'm yeah. so, so grateful. So grateful. Well, that's great. To, like when you're in a place in life where you're like, I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. That's a good feeling. You it know? feels good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So back on track. The White Link Raiders. You guys won it. Your poster pictures I've been to again. You guys yeah. won it. Oh, yeah. We like I was there in like the early 90s. And uh I was there to help set the rink up and and uh and bring in a couple of imports. And when I was working with da- a guy named Dan Sweeney, um, he was the coach and GM, and we had like a couple of seasons where I think we went undefeated in all games, all competitions. Uh, we won everything. And I think they went on to win the, win it another two years on top of that. So it was like something like four years in a row winning the cups and the leagues. And it was, it was such a unique place to play because it was an undersized ice pad, but there's a community of about a hundred thousand people to pick from. And and the, it, the rink would hold maybe about a thousand to 1200, like packed. But I compare that to playing in Sheffield when we would have 11, 11,000 people playing or yeah, uh, watching the atmosphere was even more exciting and electric because everyone's just on top of you. And Uh, there's um, those arenas where you only need a thousand people in it. And it uh, is the most exciting arena to play in, in the world. It was beautiful. And the, the, the players and the community were together, you know, everyone would go to the bar after and people became friends. There wasn't that separation between like your high, your high professional leagues to the, to the communities. Like they were integrated. And it was such a special time. I think anybody who ever talks about the White Link Raiders in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, they'll say that it's probably one of the most special 
times in their lives, not just with regards to hockey, but with regards to community and friendships and bonds that were made over those those years. It was absolutely it was incredible. And we won everything, which made it even better. Winning winning is fun, makes things yeah. more fun, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I well, you know, we can dive into this still. Here we go. Yeah. Growing yeah. up in Saskatchewan, what all how'd you get into hockey and what all sports did you play? Yeah, so I think that uh, my mom and dad are from were from Doncaster, and they immigrated to to Canada in 1967 with my sister, who was two at the time. So, and they went to Pontex, is how that's how it's pronounced. They're a little that French. must have been something, eh? Just getting on, just uh, yeah. packing up I wrote and a, leaving, eh? I wrote an essay about like my heroes, and my parents were my heroes. You know, like I say, even though like we had some some tumultuous times in the household, they were heroes in the fact that they, you know, I think they had two wooden trunks, and they got on a like a, a boat, like a, a train from Doncaster to Liverpool, Liverpool a boat to uh, Montreal, and then uh, a train from Montreal to this little place like Swift, Swift Current in Saskatchewan where they there was literally tumbleweeds blowing across the rail track when they got there there was nowhere there no one there to meet them and then finally they ended up in Pontex because someone came to pick them up and um and then my sister was my other sister was born and then I was born and so why were Pontex, they why did they go to Saskatchewan why did oh they... sorry yeah because the, because my dad was a teacher and there was a shortage of teachers in this in in, in Canada so they were relocating teachers to to Canada to teach and um and, you know, I grew up in like not far from where Brian Trotje was from. So my dad actually coached basketball against Brian Trotje. Oh, and okay. uh, and then he wanted to, my dad needed to further his education and go to University of Saskatchewan. So we, when I was five, we moved to Saskatoon and, um, and hockey was part of hockey and, and, and soccer, proper football were, were just part of my life growing up. But I also boxed and I wrestled, uh, I played American football in high school a little bit, but it was really, I played sport because um, I think just that fear of, of dad for me to get his love and attention, sport was that way. It also kept me out of the house a lot. So I was always constantly busy because I didn't want to be in the house when it was, when it was had that bad energy and it was, you know, my dad been drinking. So, right. um, so I, I just grew up. Sport was my identity. I was just known as an athlete, not an elite athlete, but just a really above average athlete. I could kind of put my hand to anything. And so then you grow up in Saskatchewan and then at what age are you heading back then to the UK? Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, um, I played, when I was playing hockey, I, I was playing like, you know, double A hockey and a bit of junior B. I had tryouts in triple A midget. And, um, and because of some of the injuries that I had, I'd lost that bit of pace. Uh, so like uh, the UK hockey was going to be like, uh, we looked at some universities, we looked at some teams to play for, but because, I had this really bad temper when I was like, it came out of me when I was about 12 or 13. And I think probably that was maybe some of the traumas that had happened, but I could throw punches and my dad brought me to boxing and, uh, and I learned how to fight, you know, with, uh, in, in a, in a place where there was a lot of tough kids yeah. and I learned how to take a punch more than anything and, um, and how to give one back. And, um, and, I got I my my temper would come out in some other ways and I I remember I was playing a game once and uh, I tried to bury the puck behind the net I tried to freeze the puck behind my own net and of course you know I said no no and I got bounced off the puck they got the puck they came around they scored I felt really bad and I was skating to the bench with, with my head down and the coach 
was just like, Rockwell, don't ever fucking try that again. You loser, blah, blah, blah. And I was like sitting at the end of the bench with my head down, knowing I already done wrong. But he just yeah. kept going on and on and on. And finally, I just turned to him. I was like, fuck off. Yeah. And he said, get in the bench. You're off the team. And I, and I, I remember going into, into the changing room. And I took off my shirt. And I took my shorts down. And I was threw it in the bin. And I was just about to pee on it. And the equipment manager came in. And he was like, what are you doing? And anyway, lo and behold, I, I got banned from for playing for, for a whole season of hockey because I was going to piss on my jersey. <laughs> and, but what that did is it helped me in England because of being banned uh, for that season. I didn't register on the I international transfer cards, the ITCs. So uh, they were like, so when I started playing at 18 in the UK, technically I'd learned my hockey in the UK. Because I think because if you're registered after you're 16, 17 in, in Canada, then you 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 go up on the list and you have to play as an import. So I didn't play as an import over here. So that's, um, which yeah. that's that's why you know I was like, you know, because I talked the way I talked, I think people expected me to be better than I was. I was just a grinder, dude. I was just a grinder and, you're and mucking I, it I, up out there. <laughs> yeah. But on the Isle of Wight for like I did my shot got pretty good and, and I and I could I could hit the corners pretty well. And I had two really fast uh line mates and they just got me the puck in the high slot and that's why I racked up those kind of goals. So but your first year over in the UK, you start 91, 92, is that right? With Solent Vikings. Yeah, and, which right? was uh, that yeah, that was the Isle of Wight, Solent. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then, yeah. um, so then Simsy just throws a boatload of cash at you to come to Sheffield or what? <laughs> it, it, no, no, no. We went up and played. I, I was with Solon. We went up and played. I played uh, pretty well, even though we lost probably about 20 to two. But I hit like Ron Truger, Rocket Ron Truger. He was the, their, their, their Rocket star. Rocket Ron he, and pretty boy Nick. <laughs> yeah, he was he was Mr. Mr. Sheffield, Mr. Hockey. And I hit him. And after the game, he came up to me. He goes, why don't you come play up here? And, uh, and I was like, yeah, you know, I just played in front of 10,000 people. So I commuted from the Isle of Wight where I was living up to Sheffield to play. Um, how, how far is that? It was a, like a four hour with Journey. trains and tubes and stuff having to go through London. It was crazy, but it was an incredible season. And at the beginning of that next season, uh, I played a couple of games with Sheffield and, and then I got fired. Well, if what Sims, he gassed you. It was a guy named Ronnie Wood who he was, uh, I think he tried to do one of those Hitchcock things, you know, like he, he, they were, he, no one was getting paid at the beginning of the year. You got we fired in, the first season with Sheffield. You had 13 second, goals in 13 games. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then I got fired the next season <laughs> the, the, after, because I think, you know what, there's that myth that Alfred Hitchcock would always hire someone on his set so he could fire them and show that he's in power. Well, I think Ronnie Wood had this like, power problem and and i think he needed someone like we were all around his desk saying give us our checks give us our checks and i was like come on man like i just got married give me my check and he went you're here's your check you're fired <laughs> and everyone kind of looked around and was like what you know this is it and uh yeah he actually did gas me because i asked i asked for my check with like three or four other guys who hadn't been paid uh <laughs> which was ridiculous because sheffield were getting a lot of money back then and i think I think there's a few bucks going out the side door somewhere, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> oh, they're getting 10,000 people in the arena. <laughs> yeah. And then he was squabbling over giving me a check for like a few hundred pounds. So well, I uh, wonder what anyway. the fella getting eight points a game was getting paid. <laughs> yeah. They would have so been they few, must, you guys must've won it that first year. I'm assuming if the guy got eight points a game. No, we actually didn't. We lost, we came in second 
and against and there was a team called the Medway Bears and they they actually won the league. We came in second, but we we got promotion in the playoffs with them. So okay. Yeah. So yeah. um then so then you get gassed in Sheffield. Um yeah. and then you head to the Chelmsford Chieftains. Yeah, I got gassed there too. Uh they were they're they're <laughs> I've eight goals really in well. eight games, twenty points. Yeah. yeah, I got gassed there too because you got uh, fired with twenty points in eight games. Man, a yeah. tough, tough crowd back then. Yeah, fired back to back in a couple months. Yeah. But I think that was uh, I don't know. They were saying that they didn't have enough money to pay me. So I'm sorry, there's a building going on next door if you can hear some buzzing yeah but... there's a little bit of buzzing over there okay yeah. well yeah um so then you go to white link raiders where yeah. you spend the next cut well at least a little bit of time eh yeah yeah i spent a couple of years there until uh i think it was two seasons i spent there so that's and on the isle the... of white i love white yeah which is just an amazing place to play it was beautiful it was an amazing couple of seasons but that's when i was going to university and uh, in Winchester, which is just on, on the south coast as well. And then I, I, the Guilford Flames, I think they had, they saw my numbers in that last year and they they were rebuilding their team there. So I went to Guilford. Uh, and, and honestly, that move to Guilford, that's what killed my hockey career because they had the worst coach ever, a guy named Ivan Brown. And he, he was the worst coach, worst man manager uh, I, I'd ever seen. I started that season off great. And it was just always these nitpicking. Like he was just so negative all the time. And there was like guys, a guy named Andy Sparks, who's a great British hockey player over here, a real utility guy. And it, we, people just lost the love of the game because of this this moron. And um, and and I just was like, I'm not going to do this. And and I I BS my way into Sky Sports, so I knew that was going to be coming. And uh, and I just wasn't interested in the hockey anymore. I just wanted to become a TV guy. Right, because <laughs> it was a lot. I wasn't going to get my face smashed in, right? And yeah, I mean, this may sound tough, but like you got fired in Sheffield and then Chelmsford, and you're like, "Well, what am I doing?" Right? <laughs> but the, well, yeah, yeah. I just yeah. don't understand the getting fired because, um, like, you go to White Link, and then your first season in there, you had 136 points and 24 games played. So, check out the pims, though, right? I got, I had the pims. Too. I didn't write that down. Oh yeah, I, 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 I the research team missed that. 100, 150 or 180 pims in 21 games or something like that. Some of the stats back then in British hockey were pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, they were. They were. But you know what? It was a beautiful time because, like I say, it was all. It was mainly all British guys playing. You'd have two or three Canadians on a team, and uh, it was just a lot of fun. A lot of fun hockey. Um, and and you were kind of you were paid to score goals. So if you didn't score at least three goals a game. It wasn't it wasn't right. a good reflection on you, so you had to score. So it kind of got silly sometimes when you knew you didn't need to score, and they still you would anyway. Yeah, like well, yeah. in Germany or Switzerland, you know, those fellas are getting paid to score goals, right? Maybe not That's three it, a game, yeah. but you better be scoring. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um. So then you go to Guilford, and like, yeah, when I looked you up, like there's hockey cards of you made and stuff. So, are we getting closer to the elite league, the BD one? Yeah, um, the BNL one, I think it was right, British National League. I'm just, they've changed they changed the league, the names of the league so many times. Yeah, but we're getting closer to the top league. But and and when I stopped playing, then that's when the the Super League started in the UK. I think in 1997. And that's when all and, a lot of British guys lose their I guess their yeah. paychecks for the sport, right? Because they're all going to the imports in the Super League, and then there's probably not much money left for any Brits. 
that's it, you know, and the Super League was probably the best hockey, like I think from, you know, 90, 90 say, let's say 97, 99 to 2000 and a bit, that was the best hockey that the UK had seen. And uh, I mean, there were some amazing hockey players over here, you know, guys with AHL and NHL pedigree, like really, really high. And um, it was almost too good because you'd gone from like score lines, like 20 to two, uh, <laughs> to like two, one and, and four, three, if it's a you know, high scoring game and, fans just didn't you know it was like what's they didn't going, understand what are we it, yeah because they're used to really celebrating the 25th goal <laughs> yeah you know so so hockey really changed a lot with that super league although the hockey was at a high quality it wasn't needed it killed off a lot of good brits that were that could have been playing and 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 developing and and uh contributing to the game but also having the passion for it you know i think about a lot of these british guys that quit then and they're my friends now and they could have got involved in coaching you know, the junior systems, but the actual love of the game got taken from them because all of a sudden they were, they were just seen as like no longer needed for requirement. And, and that was all a dollar figure. And, you know, ultimately the super league killed itself because it became greedy. Well, I got into coaching my son last year and looks like there's a good chance I'll be helping my daughter's team, whichever one she's on. But um, like when you get to, do it older when you've been through it and say you've had some dickheads as coaches then when you get to do it you get to do it the way you want to the way you thought it should be right yeah and i think that but and i think that's it is a thing too though brent is that um we've got we we there's a, there's ways that we want things but there's there's a lot of education that needs to go behind it and i think that my problem right now with coaching is that i'll tend to do with the youngsters what, what people did with me so um, I, I don't look for the, like, there's a guy that I really, really look up to over here. And uh, he started a rink called the Ozone, Danny Myers. And I was talking to him the other day and he was like, he looks at the kid's eyes for smiles. So instead of like all of the drills and making sure everything, he's looking for their enjoyment on their face. Oh, and that yeah. really resonated with me. I was like, yeah, what am I doing? Like with an, like a 10 year old kid you know, and, and getting them to do a certain drill in a certain way when they're not enjoying it. I, and I, because- I switch things up so fast. If I see them get bored for like, if you start a drill and you can tell the, you can see, especially like the kids in under nine or under 11, they'll, they show yeah. what's going on. And if you see they're bored, they're not paying attention and they're not having fun. And you got to switch up your plans quick. <laughs> you you got to switch up. And I think that's what you're doing is great. What Danny's doing is great. I had to kind of relearn it. Whereas, cause I, cause what I learned from coaching was what was taught to me. And that was, it wasn't helpful coaching. It was right. like the stuff of like, Oh, I'm trying to make it into the NHL kind of coaching. And, and I think that parents, people who get involved with hockey nowadays, you know, you, you've got a better chance of winning the lottery than your kid making it in the NHL, probably winning the lottery twice why is your kid playing hockey you know and it's got to be it's it's got to be be about for fun and learning to be on a team and being part of a team yeah all of the things that make us want to cry when (laughs) when when we talk about not doing it anymore right that's why we want to play hockey because it gives us connection it gives us accountability it gives us brotherhoods and that 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 span a whole lifetime you know and I i talk about that because you know when i was in toronto Dan Sweeney, who I played hockey with on the Isle of Wight, uh, I'll never, I'll never forget how kind he was to me when he saw me struggling. You know, he didn't judge me, and he knew I was struggling. He didn't judge me. He did everything he could to help me without, like, 
pointing his finger or, 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 or making me feel guilty. He just helped me the way that he could, which was with love and kindness and a non-judgment voice. You know, and, and that's because like we we bled for each other on the ice, you know, and I shouldn't use that term. We sweated for each other on the ice. Yeah. You, know? you, uh, you yeah. block shots and like, you know, there's yeah. different things hockey players do for each other that they get that bond. But for me, it's been very fulfilling because the little fellows I coached last year are now in tryouts and like we talk about, it's got to be a for fun. Like those kids that were on my team last season, like for the most part, almost all of them, like they love hockey. Like they go home and play road hockey. They go play mini hockey. Like their birthday parties are inviting their hockey buddies over to play mini hockey or road hockey. And that makes me feel good as their coach from last year. And then I see them out in tryouts. You can tell which kids go home and practice hockey because they love it. It's not because their parents were making them go to practices or doing all the extra hockey camps. It's because these kids went home and played mini hockey with their friends and you see them out in the tryouts and man makes you proud. <laughs> it does. I, I, are doing great. Those like apart, apart from those couple of years on the Isle of Wight and you know, the certain little moments that you remember playing in front of 11,000 people in Sheffield, it was the times in my basement with my buddies with like goals that we made out of like some sticks and some net and, and just banging tennis balls around, you know, and, uh, and then going outside and playing on the driveways with like snow everywhere and, and just a tennis ball and a dog running around trying to play as well. Well, and, it's, uh, it's like last season, we had pond hockey tournaments with our team, with our hockey family and like the siblings played, um, they got obviously the guys in the team played and then the parents all watched and had like, you know, ate food and drank outside. And like, we were a hockey family and like winning that pond hockey tournament against each other is it's as exciting as playing in the all Ontario finals. Right. It, it, it truly is. I think that the hockey family is uh man. It's a special, it's a special family to be part of. Um, and I think that it can be confused a, a lot of times with kind of like the, the, the competition, and the winning kind of overwhelms stuff sometimes. And and what I like to do is I like to call it like, you know, let's challenge each other rather than compete. Cause I think, you know, like we're all winners. We don't need to compete. You know, we can just go out and have fun. You and challenge sound like you're going to give everybody participation medals. No, no, I, I'm not like that, but, <laughs> but, but, but I think that. I think there's winners I, and there's losers in hockey. I think some I think guys lose every year because they're not that good teammates. <laughs> maybe, you know, but maybe those are the guys that, 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 that need to be worked with and to be held a little bit and to kind of understand a little bit more. But I think that, uh, I, I don't know. I try to t stay away from the, that lose losing word and more like substitute with learning. Right. You know, like, well, yeah, yeah, if you lose, you got to adjust and make, make different plans and adjust power plays or penalty kills yeah. right to win the next time. But yeah, yeah. you learn cause you lost. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, you learn, you don't, you you don't learn as much when you win, you know, you think <laughs> no. you're pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was thinking more, like I say, around the, the fun side of stuff and, and how the yeah. hockey families, you know, like the, I just remember the bottle drives we used to do back in Saskatoon, raising money and, um, you know, the picnics we would have over guys' houses and the barbecues and uh, even in wintertime, you know, throwing burgers on a on a propane um, barbecue outside when it's like minus 20. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, it is. And that's yeah, that's what was so fun about last season. Uh, I can't wait for this season to get started with the uh, gals, whatever team I end up with. But um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, 
you know, and then I got right behind me. It's somewhere back there. Like I got the whole team mini sticks made, right? With two ales and hockey tails mini sticks with their names and numbers, you know? Yeah. And they got shirts too. And I think they'll Beautiful. remember that shit. <laughs> oh yeah. You'll have to send some of that merch over here. I want some. <laughs> I got to get more stuff made. I already gave yeah. everything away. <laughs> but actually we do have merch folks at aleshockeytails.com. Sean Collins has a whole shop up and he has shirts and hats and everything. If anybody wants anything, it's at aleshockeytails.com, right? Good plug. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, you got anything else before we shut her down? Yeah, you know, I think that as uh, anybody who, who listens to this, who kind of resonates with a little bit about my story, like I, I, you know, even like I say, like I played sport was a as a coping mechanism, I think, to a lot of stuff. And I think that if you if you you you, you don't have to look far for some people who might be have been going through some stuff. And we're about to start a season where a lot of guys are going to be leaving home. They're going to be going to some places that they don't really know. Uh, the weather can be a little bit different, can be a little bit gloomy sometimes. Uh, they can feel a little bit lonely, but I, so I want people to know that there are like, uh, there's always a non-judgmental, kind, compassionate voice to listen to. If you get in touch with, with, with Retribe in any way, you can get in touch with me um, because I've, I've been into those dark places and I know what it's like. And I know the kind of like how, how to nip things in the bud before they get too bad. So, you know, anyone who might be feeling a little bit lonely, a little bit disconnected, a little bit fearful. Uh, and think that they've got it all their own and that they can handle it all on their own, then I want them to know that, you know, in, in some instances, you don't have to do it all alone. Right. Um, and, that it, and if you feel like you don't want to go to a coach or a teammate with, with some of the things that you might be feeling, then please get in touch uh, because there's solutions to all of it. There's protocols that can help anybody to kind of create this balance in their lives where they don't have to feel alone and fearful. Right. And um, when I got your email, and one of the things you wrote when you gave me a bit of your story was if it only helps one person, right? Um, I can get up at 6 a.m. to talk to people in my shed. It makes me happy. And hopefully your story does help a person or two. And if not, we had fun anyways, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, we did. I can't thank you enough, Brent, for giving me the time. And yeah, you're right. As long as, you know, if, if, if one person resonates with it and, and reaches out or if they don't, you know, that's the other thing too. This is a, 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 you know, is that we can always be proactive in reaching out to people as well. So I tend to think about people when I talk to them and they're, they, and I ask them how they're doing. They're like, life's great. Life's beautiful. I've got nothing to worry about. They're the guys that I put on a little list. And in a week I check up on them because I was that guy. I was that guy that could put on a suit. Like you asked Dave Sims, he'd say, no way would I ever think that Nick had the problems that he had because I could, I was so good at faking it and being this bullshitter. You know, and when I, when I said everything was good inside, I was that scared eight-year-old boy. And um, and I felt like a fraud and an imposter. So I, I know there's guys out there who might resonate with feeling a little bit scared, a little bit alone. Well, uh, and, and having the experience of going through shit, right, is like, it's like for me, if like to do have the shed and do this is because I went out and played in Europe and met a bunch of people. And I have the experiences of what each league is like and some of the stuff mm. and the hard times. Right. But like from where you ended up in that room in Toronto to where yeah. you are now, you've gained some experience, right? And if my can experience, if my experience can help anybody else, that's you're right. That's exactly why I'm here. Plus 
to, to meet and to chat with you. And, and I've really, really enjoyed this time, man. I can't tell you, I'm really grateful for it. Well, isn't it interesting? People want to come to my shed and reach out to me and they ask if um, their story would be worthy of my shed. Everybody's story is worthy of my shed. <laughs> uh, but I think what you, what you're doing is incredible. Um, it's, it gives you a passion and drive. And I think that's what everybody needs in life, right? It's something that really gets them up out of bed and gets them going, right? Yeah, it's the antidote to loneliness. Passion passion, and, and purpose uh, can cure anything. So yeah, let's help people find it. And this has been another episode of Zero L's and Hockey Tales with pretty boy Nick and Wally. Some people clap on a one and three. Some people clap on a two and four. Some people don't join at all because they got no rhythm, and that's all right. Some people, they drink too much. Some people don't drink enough. Some people are just like me. I hope y'all forgive them. I'm like Scott and Santa Claus. I'm like Pete's Southbound Zan Zan. I'm always speaking my mind.